Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In the program this week... The former New Zealand cricket captain Stephen Fleming talks about plans for a charity cricket match to raise funds for victims of the Canterbury earthquake. We hear about the role of sports chaplaincy in New Zealand sports teams. Blythe Tate talks about his return to top-level equestrian competition after a seven-year absence at one of the country's premier mountain biking events, the Karapoti Classic at Upper Hutt near Wellington's underway again. The former international cricketers Shane Warne and Martin Crow will take to the field in a charity cricket match at the Basin Reserve in Wellington on Sunday week to raise funds for victims of the Christchurch earthquake. The match is being organised by former Black Cabs captain Stephen Fleming, who grew up in Christchurch but now lives in Wellington, and who was visiting family in Christchurch the day before the quake struck. We had a great weekend where I took the family down to experience some of my sort of childhood haunts where we uh, played on Cave Rock, Shag Rock, which I think are, are no longer standing and um, we enjoyed a, a great time sort of around that Sumner Littleton area, which was one of the hardest hit areas, so to, to be sitting at home the next day watching the pictures and the heartache was uh, very hard to accept. What went through your mind as you saw those pictures? Oh, you get a bit of a chill just thinking what if it, we were there a day later and then it very quickly turns to um, a, a dismay and horror of the, uh, the people that were trapped and the, the trying to realise the full extent and scale of the disaster itself and worked out pretty quickly that it was of a major scale and then it was um, dealing with friends and family and trying to make contact. So pretty frantic like everybody else who was outside the area sitting helplessly watching. Now you've come up with a, a plan to a, a charity match to try and raise money for the, for the victims. Who have you approached and what sort of response have you had? Yeah, had a wonderful uh, response in particular from Shane Warne who uh, with a busy schedule was able to drop everything, uh, very aware of the uh, the state of the emergency in, in Christchurch dropped everything and has made himself available for that day and, and around that we've been able to fill two teams with, with great cricketing legends and uh, we'll announce it over the next week but excited that Martin Crowe who is um, arguably our, our best batsman can captain one side and, uh, and I'll don the red and black again to captain the Canterbury side and I'm sure you the players we announce over the, the coming week to keep the interest bubbling will um, certainly whet the appetite of, of sporting fans, but that's not necessarily as the, uh, as the true reason that we'd like to fill the basin. It would be um, great from a, a pride point of view and a, a great outlet for, for Wellington uh, and a whole to show their support in a very public way by filling the basin and, and maybe in red and black for that afternoon. Are there places in particular that you have special memories of in, in Christchurch that have been yeah. devastating? Well, most of them, really. I, I just think that the ones that are devastated the most, you, you know them being in their true glory, and when you see them at the rubble and lying in a mess, you, you just do two things. You feel very emotional, and then you also realise the uh, true extent of the power and the, the force that went through the city at that time. And watching the, the poor people that were uh, that were trapped and those, of course, that lost their lives, it was um, it was very hard not to put yourself in that situation years earlier when... 
let's say you're playing down in Sumner and some of those beautiful spots down there and, and you just wonder what if. And that, that I guess, as a Cantabrian, was the, the hardest thing was to see things that um, that helped me have fun in a great city to be destroyed just like that. And uh, very hard to accept. Flew over Christchurch this morning and, um, and still uh, unbelievable and very hard to take in the extent of the damage. That's former New Zealand cricket captain Stephen Fleming, who's organising a charity cricket match at the Basin Reserve in Wellington on Sunday, March the 13th. A team chaplain isn't a role usually associated with sports teams in this country, but it's one the New Zealand Breakers basketball side has embraced. This week, coach Andre Lemanis asked his team's chaplain to talk to players about the impact the Christchurch quake may have had on them. Baptist pastor Grant Harris told Murray Williams that while sports chaplaincy is rare in New Zealand, the Blues' super rugby side are the only other sports team he knows of who has a chaplain. He says it's quite common overseas. In Australia particularly, most NBL teams, pretty much all the NRL teams, pretty much all the AFL teams also have chaplains associated with them. And our role is simply to be there as a, a support person, not just for the players, but for the organisation, to recognise that life is holistic and what happens off the field can affect people on the field or on the court as far as basketballers go. Um, so the, the Breakers have had a chaplain for a little while now, and I've just been, this is my, my personal, my first year involvement with them. And I just recognised last week that the earthquake is affecting all Kiwis, various ways, one or two degrees of separation. We probably all know someone involved. And I wanted to make sure that the guys had adequate support behind them, that when things are raised, you know, for them or within their families, that they had the ability to talk about and, and process those things, because all of those things will affect their lives, and that affects their performance. One of the Warriors is from Christchurch and he was yeah. he went down there to have a look at the yeah. old hometown and I'm going to do that Sunday morning so it's all... Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, well absolutely and so you know it's a significant probably the most significant event for New Zealand and tragic and the ability for people to be able to process that and to understand it put in context and uh, you know in their own lives is you know just the holistic nature of all of our lives. So chaplaincy and the breakers you know I'm, I'm just there as a support person, someone to talk to if they need to uh, but more than that, to you know, make sure that they are cared for. I mean, they might have their own support people, and that's great. But just to highlight to them the need to think holistically. I think in many ways it's tied in with sports psychology in some ways, that if things aren't going well you know, in their lives, that can affect their bodies, um, injuries, uh, ability to recover from injuries. So we kind of look holistically at, the, I guess, the off-the-court performance and what's going on for them. And I guess um, having to go out and play a game less than, well, just over 24 hours after something like that happening, yeah. doesn't, you'd have to be a, a person with very limited or no imagination not to be thinking a bit about that, wouldn't you? That was certainly raised in the dressing room pre the game. Um, so they were aware of what was going on. Uh, and, you know, I guess my role in there is also, I mean, I just I, I pray for the team before the game and um, hopefully just give them a little bit of encouragement before they go out and try and keep, you know, sport in perspective, I guess, into the holistic nature of life. When you were talking to the guys, I mean, I know there's presumably that they would reflect the usual mix of um, believers and non-believers and people who, who do it, rather do other things. And yeah. what, what sort of things were people saying to you? Um, look, they, um, they will process things in different ways. And, um, you know, I talked to a few of them afterwards. And, uh, you know, somebody was sort of asking, you know, this is tragic. You know, I look on TV and I, I feel so helpless. I feel so hopeless. You know, how do I, how do I process this? And it's just helping guys to understand that sometimes we can't do anything. And in that sort of situation, um, you know, this is the way the world works. There's tragedy around us, and we have to understand that. But bigger than that, you know, helping them understand that um, it's okay, 
and that there is hope, you know, we move on. And I guess if any of them are personally affected, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not purely their only support networks. I mean, I'm, I'm making sure that they have support networks in their lives as well because I think the pressure comes on often in relationships and in marriages. And so it's not just in their lives, it's, it's their families and their networks behind them, and just making them aware that these sorts of events do affect us, um, you know, in our hearts and in our minds. And so just to be aware on the lookout for those kinds of things to, to keep them sharp, you know, on the court as well. Have they turned you into a basketball fan? <laughs> well, I've always been a basketball fan. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, our family plays. Um, I coach basketball. <laughs> so, so for me, it's been uh, a yeah, perfect combination of, you know, what I do for a career and also what I do as a hobby. So now it's all good. <laughs> yeah, and, you, and I guess when Andre talked to you, so you, you don't have to hesitate about something like that, do you? Yeah, no. And, you know, I mean, um, certainly I, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor by career, but um, the issues that we talk about, you know, they're, they're common to all people, you know. Seeing tragedy in the world doesn't matter if you've got a, a faith base or not. You know, these are issues that affect us, and people have got to learn to deal with them from whatever perspective they're coming from. So, you yeah. know, I'm not a, I'm not laying the religious card on them or anything like that. These are issues in our hearts that we all have. That's New Zealand Breakers pastor Grant Harris talking to Murray Williams. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. Seeking a challenge and inspired by Mark Todd's return to international competition. Equestrian Blythe Tates announced he's coming out of retirement to try and compete at next year's London Olympics. The 49-year-old Tate, who's won four Olympic medals, including gold at the 1996 Atlanta Games, says having lived and competed in England for 15 years makes London an attractive proposition. I'm looking for a challenge again and obviously missing the excitement of competing after you know being away for a while, but... I think probably the time's right if I decide I want to do it uh, later on in life. It's too late, and I just think that London is a very appealing option. So, um, yeah, I've decided to take the bull by the horns and give it a go. And I guess you you've, you've have to go over there and prove yourself because the selectors aren't going to say, oh, you, you know, you're on the strength of your great no. past record. You can yeah, no way. On. Unfortunately, there's going to be no free ride. I'm going to have to get out and prove myself again, and I totally understand that. Uh, my aims this year is to get back competing at the top level and to get the results on the board that are going to, um, you know, interest the selectors or give me the opportunity to go on into 2012 looking towards London. But it'll be one step at a time. And I guess you'd still have, um, after all that time you spent in England, you'd have plenty of uh, friends and acquaintances and things to Yeah, well, and out. that's the reason why it appeals with the games being in London. I think if it was somewhere like Beijing last time, it would have been so much more difficult to plan a campaign. So, yes, I'm going to be, you know, leaning on friends and uh, and that over there that um, and, and sponsors perhaps, and um, hopefully it'll, it'll enable me to have a, a decent campaign. And how's your fitness and your and your uh, your drive to compete and succeed? I w- well, my drive is great, and I would say my fitness is well below where it needs to be. But I don't think that I um, I shouldn't be able to get back to where I need to be. I mean, I still ride horses daily, and um, you know, still work outside on the farm. So I haven't got completely unfit, but there'll be a bit of work to do. And tell us about uh, Santos. Santos is a 12-year-old uh, New Zealand thoroughbred horse, and he's very similar to the sort of horses that I've, I've ridden before with success. Um, he's been produced and competed by Jenna Marnie, who his previous rider, and she's done a great job. He's got the right sort of mileage for me. He's already campaigned at the four-star level, and he's a, he's a good, safe, strong horse that's, um, that's good in all three of the phases. 
And when do you start competing in England? Or um, leaving at the end of the month? What's first flies, on the agenda? He flies to the UK on the 27th of this month, and I'll go up a couple of days before him. Um, we won't start competing until the end of April, and it'll be at just the national level. But the, the, the aim for this year is to campaign through and perhaps try and perform well at Burley at the end of the season. And what have you learned from um, Mark Todd's comeback? I've learned that it's a lot of hard work. <laughs> I was up there a couple of weeks ago, and um, I realise now that you know I can't. I, I'd forgotten how hard, how much work needed to be put in behind the scenes. But um, you know, with him being successful and stepping right back into it, I guess it just gives me confidence, really. That's Blythe Tate talking to Murray Williams. The Karapoti Classic is one of New Zealand's premier mountain biking events, and it's in its 26th year. And it's again attracted a large field of expert and part-time riders this weekend. The 50-kilometre ride is over some of the most difficult mountain biking terrain with the event held north of Wellington at Upper Hutt. Michael Jakes is the event organiser and he spoke to Barry Guy about the special nature of the event. It's the Southern Hemisphere's longest-running mountain bike event. It was actually the third mountain bike event established in New Zealand back in 86. Um, the first two were, were down south, but they, they didn't last beyond the first year, but this event has lasted year after year, and, and as the sport sort of developed... It became very much a cultural thing amongst mountain biking. It was sort of the, the one event that every mountain biker wanted to do and, and every year sort of, you know, people keep coming back to it. Now, it's not like you might see at the Olympics, which uh, I understand is a bit tame when it comes to the Karapoti. Yeah, exactly. The um, In the old days, mountain biking was very much sort of an adventure type thing, um, whereas, you know, nowadays as, as we get more and more televised, as it were, you know, sports like mountain biking at Olympic level and triathlon and, you know, they've sort of become almost spectator sports from the point of view that, you know, they're held on small closed circuits so they're easy to cover TV-wise and easy to watch from a spectator point of view. And the Karapoti sort of stayed true to the original origin, so it's it's very much an adventure ride. It takes in the Akataro Ranges um, inland from Upper Hutt in Wellington and it's a, it's a big 50k circuit with, with four huge hills and all sorts of things like knee deep bogs and we've got a section called the rock garden which is a, is a downhill section where people are riding through sort of rocks the size of soccer balls and dropping off ledges, you know, waist high ledges and things like this and there's several river crossings and uh, there's a section called the devil's staircase which is a hill that's so steep that it's just had steps cut into it and they have to walk it for about 2k, it just can't be ridden and um, yeah it's just become one of those sort of legendary things that, that people do to mark their mountain biking interest. Not even the guns can get around completely on their bike? No, exactly, yeah. And so, and, and that, that becomes quite a sort of a, an interesting thing, really, because it, mountain biking and also sports like triathlon, you know, they're relatively recent on the world stage. You know, mountain biking in New Zealand's only been around for about 27 years. This is the 26th uh, Marita Karapoti Classic. And um, they're reasonably unique in that, that sort of world-class riders and, and weekend warriors you know, rub shoulders on the start line, whereas in, in a lot of sports, or most sports worldwide, you know, the world-class level is, a spe- is essentially a spectator sport. So yeah, things like this are quite unique. You know, they bring the sport together, and that's what builds the culture. I imagine there's a bit of carnage, and you can't just do this on uh, a couple of weeks' training, I, I imagine. No, no, we do get a few people that try, though, and they usually come unstuck. You know, there's always... the, the Record for the event's two hours fourteen by a guy Clinton Avery from Rotorua in two thousand and seven. Yeah, he's actually moved over to the dark side to to road cycling. But um, 
you know, it's not something that you can do off just a few few weeks training. Like I say, Clinton's record's two hours fourteen, but there's people out there t- taking seven hours to do it, and and most people are doing around the four to five hour mark. But it's popular. Typically, we have a sellout field. We take thirteen hundred riders in total, um, and and some years. Uh, we've had you know up to 500 people on a waiting list, so it can be a bit of an administrative nightmare just controlling that, let alone the race. This year we're a wee bit down on normal, just with the um, Canterbury earthquakes. It was already the Christchurch participation was already a wee bit down before last Tuesday's earthquake, so um, and now it's it's really dropping off, and also a bit down on Australians after their flooding, you know, over over the summer. So but we still have just short of 1,200 riders lining up, uh, 12 countries. And, and yeah, some, some of New Zealand's best riders and a couple of internationals as well. Four-time coast-to-coast champion Richard Usher. He's sort of coming across to have a go at mountain biking to see what it's all about. But the big sort of all eyes really will be on a young guy called Anton Cooper. He's just a 16-year-old. Um, last year he finished fourth overall amongst pro elite as a 15-year-old. And uh, last week at the national championships, he's now 16. He won the junior race by a country mile but was riding laps faster than was you know than the winners of the senior pro elite race and so it'd be very interesting he could well become the youngest guy to ever win Karapoti. Correct me if I'm long, wrong I'm led to believe but you know those that have old bikes without suspension even single speed things you know do they take part? Yeah definitely yeah there's we have a thing called special categories which is um among mountain biking is you know very sort of cultural sort of things, all sorts of little clicks within the overall sport. Um, so we have sections for unicycles. There'll be about half a dozen guys on unicycles out there. Um, the fastest of them typically is Ken Louie, who's a Wellingtonian now living in Australia. Um, he's been around the course in about 4 hours 11 minutes for memory as his record for the unicycle. This is one wheel, and um, which is you know faster than the average time on two wheels. Um, we also have a thing called retro, which is for... Um, Old-style bikes, so bikes with no suspension, no clip-in pedals, um, no carbon fibre on them anywhere, and that's just a bit of a, a giggle thing, just harking back to the old days, and I think there's a couple of people riding retro, but the big movement these days is single speed. It's very much a cultural click in mountain biking, um, so you know, very modern, very high-tech bikes, but with just one gear, and, uh, and the best guys go around not a hell of a lot slower than, than the best pro elite riders. So is the gear to get up the hills or go down the hills? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and this is the big thing. They have to try and choose a gear via experimentation that gives them the sort of the best of all worlds. Um, what usually ends up happening is that they sort of have a gear that's okay on the easier stuff, but not quite good enough. But of course, also not quite easy enough for the uphills, and so it can be a real tactical thing as to what gear you ride. Yeah. And the unicyclists, I mean, that must going downhill must be just. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah. You know, goodness. I mean, you, you, there's a there's a la- so much of a lack in control anyway. But not having like even handlebars to steady yourself on or, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. The top, the, the, the really experienced people are, are incredible. Actually, when you know to watch, you know, they actually had the unicycle, the mountain bike unicycle world champs here in Wellington last year, and um, you know, which was a very big event. We've had a thousand people from all over the world for a week doing different events. And yeah, they really are quite incredible. That you know, acrobats as well as as well as biggest endurance athletes. Yeah. So just finally, the guys that sort of set this up 26 years ago. I mean, uh, what do they think of it now? Yeah, it was set up by a guy called Paul Kennett and and his brothers Simon and Jonathan. And um, and between the three of them, they've 
sort of been behind a lot of the mountain biking movement, you know, since day one, really, and, and still are. And, I mean, they no, no longer organise the event, but they come along every year. Last year they rode it on a triple tandem. And, um, yeah, they just love the culture around mountain biking, you know, and, and they're all over the country all the time doing different events and just doing their own sort of mountain bike touring around the place as well as developing tracks in different different places. They even publish a, a book on mountain bike rides around New Zealand that has something like 400, you know, rides in it. And so they're, you know, they've been movers and shakers in the sport for oh, nearly 30 years and, and continue to be so. That's Michael Jakes, the organiser of the Karapoti Mountain Bike Classic, talking to Barry Guy. And that's extra time for this week. Remember, you can catch all the latest sports news on our website at radionz.co.nz. I'm Stephen Hewson. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.